This is Chichester Cinephile, the podcast for Chichester Cinema at New Park in Chichester, West Sussex. Find us at chichestercinema.org. Since 1992, the Chichester International Film Festival has filled August with an amazing array of new films, foreign films, classics, forgotten classics, talks and some very A-list personal appearances. This year is no different and we're going to point you towards some of the highlights from the 2023 festival, which runs from August the 4th to the 27th. The podcast team is here and I'll let them introduce themselves. Hello, I'm Carol Godsmark and I'm part of the education team and the hospitality manager. Hi, Patrick Hargood. I'm the education officer at the cinema. And I'm Sandy from the education team. Actually, I said this year was no different, but there is one big difference. We're sitting in Roger Gibson's house. He was responsible for the birth of the largest independent film festival on the South Coast and has been artistic director ever since scouring festivals around the world for films. But this is your final time as artistic director, Roger. Tell us why. Well, at at my age, almost 85, before I lose my marbles, I thought that I ought to, you know, it's a huge responsibility. It's quite frightening when you've got a blank piece of paper in January. And it's also actually, in a way, it's a great privilege because I've been given a cinema for 18 days to programme what I want to programme. There will be some withdrawal symptoms, and I'm not actually leaving the cinema. Of course, I'm still going to continue with the streaming of the operas and ballets and things and doing special events like the French Film Festival on tour. I should be selecting films for that as well. So I'll still be around, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) And why did you start the festival in the first place? Uh, Well, I think it was part of the Chichester festivities. I think that's what it was called. And uh, it seemed to me an opportunity to show film, which has always been the Cinderella, I think, of, uh, of the arts in terms of getting grants and so forth. But anyway, it was an opportunity to put film on the map a little bit more in Chichester. The Chichester festivities were all very much, in those days, very much a a music programme, actually. And the first year I did it with the festivities, but I decided that we would go on our own. So we moved it from, I don't know what it was, July to to August for the film festival. So the second one moved from the the original date so that we stood alone and we weren't just the shadow of of the big festival that was going on in July. And you have a lot of films... Yes, I mean, uh, <laughs> somebody says, you know, not too many notes, but too many films. <laughs> but I mean, the problem with film festivals is we, we always show more films than anybody can see. But although people say 18 days is, is a very long time, and normally film festivals are around a week. But what they don't appreciate is that we've only got one basic screen, although we're, we're doing the Priory Park, we're doing uh, Guild Hall, we're doing uh, St John's Chapel. So when you actually work it out, in terms of trying to select a film, if you've got it over 18 days, you've got a better chance of selecting a film than you know you only have 12 days. I know that from experience when I go to festivals. I spend a couple of nights doing my homework to work out, you know, there's sometimes there's 100 films a day. 
Well, we're not quite that. You know, we've got 10 or 12 films a day at the at absolute maximum. And over the years, are there any highlights that you can remember? Uh, I think it's more the people that we've been able to invite. I think one of the important things of Film Festival is to try to get filmmakers. And that's, that's what we don't normally have in your normal programme, but we can do it in the festival. We can persuade people to come and introduce their films and so forth. I mean, I suppose the most outstanding one was Alec Guinness. And to have him there for an hour and a half talking about his career and so forth was, was fantastic. Can I just add something? At the seventh film festival, you said, I don't know if it's worth continuing with this yeah. because the, the numbers were so low mm. and it just didn't seem to be gaining any momentum. Well, now it's the 31st edition, so <laughs> this is pretty good going. <laughs> must have been a real... Yes, I, I, I don't remember that, but really uh, it's extraordinary, extraordinary journey, the fact that we started, you know, with the first one with 28 films or whatever it was, and you say the seventh one we were not really happy, not big enough attendance, and now the last few years it's grown and grown, so hopefully I say we'll, I will finish with a big bang with the, with the best festival yet. So I, I'm very pleased to uh, announce that this festival this is my last festival is also probably the biggest we've we've actually got uh, 25 uk premieres a lot from abroad and also we have more q and a's visitors coming than we've had before so it's great to be able to announce both of those roger the guest at the closing gala last year was derek malcolm yes. and you said you you were maybe going to dedicate dedicate the yes the dedicate the festival to festival. the late derek malcolm yes because oh, yes. he died very recently didn't yes he? yes, yes. Played one, Sam, for all time's sake. I don't know what you mean, Miss Elsa. Played, Sam. Well, let's take a look at this year's festival. The gala opening is on Thursday, August the 10th. What do we have to look forward to, Carol? The film is called Il Buemo, or The Bohemian, uh, which is the opening film on August the 10th after a slap-up meal at Brasserie Blanc and is the UK premiere of the Czech nomination for next year's Foreign Language Oscar. It's an old-school, sumptuously appointed music biopic. Director Pietr Vashlav's handsome historical entertainment sets out to regild the legacy of once-celebrated 18th-century opera composer and violinist Josef Mislevicek. It's billed as Amadeus meets Dangerous Liaisons, and it follows Josef, a friend of Mozart's, when he was looking for work, came into the orbit of a rich young woman. She introduces him to a hedonistic existence, free from religious intolerance. Josef is given an incredible commission to write an opera for the San Carlo Opera House in Naples. The film captures the glorious decadence of 18th century Italy, the young musician appearing driven less by his carnal appetites than by an overwhelming desire to see his music performed. Although that didn't actually stop him from adopting a hedonistic lifestyle in this period piece. It's the squalor beneath the sublime, the grime beneath the grandeur, that is at the heart of Il Buemo. It's also an ambitious slice of musical archaeology. Vashlav spent 12 years as a writer and director on this project, which unearths the forgotten biography of a composer and his work. The latter re-emerges to glorious effect in visually and musically vivid film that largely transcends staid period drama conventions with its ripely conceived backstage and bedroom intrigue. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. 
As always, there's a fascinating selection of films from around the globe. We'll come to the French films in the festival in a moment, but first, Patrick, what's showing from the rest of Europe? Well, as a big fan of classical music, I'm a sucker for any movie set in that milieu, and the opening gala film sounds absolutely brilliant. One of the reasons I enjoyed Tar so much, apart from Kate Blanchett's performance, was the fabulous music. So I immediately homed in on Kirill Serebrenikov's film Tchaikovsky's Wife, a dramatisation of the Tchaikovsky marriage, which was also memorably rendered by Ken Russell in The Music Lovers with Glenda Jackson as the composer's troubled spouse, which is also screening at the festival. In this film, she's played by Aliona Mikhailova, and her performance has been highly praised. So this is, of course, a Russian film. Roger, what would you say to people who have qualms about supporting Russian culture at the moment? Well, the director is a dissident to begin with. So, I mean, uh, and he had a huge applause. I I was there at Cannes. So I have no qualms about showing it. And I deliberately programmed uh, The Music Lovers by Ken Russell uh, because it's the same subject. And, of course, Glenda Jackson, sadly died, plays the wife. Both films are incredibly feverish. And, you know, over the top, which one actually is more over the top than the other. So see both films. You are paid as professor of composition, but what sort of work is this? It's not only trivial, it's bad, vulgar, woman stuff. I'm sorry. It cannot have a public performance until it's completely rewritten. That was a clip from The Music Lovers with Max Adrian. Coincidentally, the festival also features another period biopic which also focuses on the wife of famous composer. This is Alma and Oscar about Alma Mahler, the wife and subsequently widow of Gustav Mahler, and her relationship with the painter Oscar Kokoschka. It's directed by Austrian Dieter Berner, whose previous film was also a biopic about an artist, Egon Schiele. Death and the Maiden, and this is also screening. The private lives of artistic geniuses have often proved a rich source of inspiration to filmmakers. One of the highlights of the last festival before Covid was Florian Henkel von Donnersmark's Never Look Away. Not strictly a biopic, but clearly based on the life of Gerhard Richter. And we have yet another European period drama in the programme for this year. German director Maggie Perenne's thriller The Forger, set in wartime Berlin, which takes as its protagonist a master in the art of constructing new identities, both for himself and for his fellow Jews, his skill being a matter of life and death for all concerned. He's played by Louis Hoffman, who is apparently well known for playing one of the leads in a Netflix sci-fi series, Dark, which I haven't seen. But I do remember him in another extremely powerful wartime drama from a few years back, Land of Mine. Two of the most memorable films I've seen in recent years on the theme of identity were directed by German helmsman Christian Petzold, Phoenix and Transit, and he's back with A Fire, in which a group of friends arrive at a holiday home with wildfires raging in the countryside around them, a situation which is perhaps a little too painfully topical at the moment. This is another film about creativity and love, with the central character a novelist, played by Thomas Schubert, and reviews suggest that this is a dark comedy notable for its tonal shifts. It won the Silver Bear at the Berlin Film Festival, and I've yet to see a film by Petzold that was not absorbing and intriguing. Finally, from the European section, I picked out another new film from a notable auteur, in this case, Romanian director Christian Munju. Many of you will, I'm sure, remember the 2007 Romanian film Four Months, Three Weeks and Two Days. And he's back this year with a new film, RMN, the title of which is apparently based on a Romanian acronym for nuclear magnetic resonance, basically a technique used in brain scans. 
The significance of that metaphor will presumably become apparent in watching the film, which concerns a particularly unpleasant real-life incident known as the Detro-Xenophobic Incident, which occurred in a rural part of Romania in 2020. Three immigrant workers in a local bakery were subjected to appalling racist persecution by the local community, and the story made the national news. Given the highly charged current debate about the treatment of immigrants in the UK, this is clearly a film which has the potential to resonate with British audiences. You must learn the ways of the Force if you are to come with me to Alderaan. And the French films to be screened come under the Vive la France banner, don't they, Carol? Yes, they do. The French Institute is again in partnership with the film festival. Kicking off the French riches is about Joan, starring Isabelle Huppert. Huppert plays the part of Joan in the title, who's a well-heeled, recently retired French publisher. On a Paris street corner, Joan runs into her first love, a once young Irishman. But when she retreats to the countryside with her son Nathan, she experiences fragmented recollections from her past romantic encounters as she revisits the last 40 years, building an imagined picture of her life. Another female name in the next film is Annie, or Angry Annie, as is the title. It's a preview. When Annie becomes pregnant, she doesn't want to keep the child and becomes involved with a movement that performs illegal abortions. It's the 1970s and Annie will encounter both allies and opponents along the way in the quest to legalize abortions. But the film instead offers a gentle insight into the compassion, bravery and care of the women and men of the movement. In the third film, Rise or Encore, Elise thought she had the perfect life, an ideal boyfriend and a promising career as a ballet dancer. It all falls apart the day that she catches him cheating on her. And after she suffers an injury on stage, it seems like she might not be able to dance again. For a first-time actor in a feature film, Marion Barbeau, who plays Elise, a trained ballet dancer at the Paris Opera, gives a beautiful performance which communicates the emotional interiority that exists in the physicality of dancing, bringing to mind, to some perhaps, Moira Shira in The Red Shoes. One of the new releases is Paris Memories, the drama based on a terrorist attack and the profound marks left on those who survived, undeniably bringing to mind the Charlie Hebdo and the Bataclan tragedies in the French capital. Three months after being caught in a Paris bistro during the attack, Mia, the wonderful Virginie Effira, who was recently seen in Other People's Children, is a Russian translator and who remains in limbo, a stranger to herself and to the city. By returning to the place where it all happened and where she hid to avoid the killers, she makes an effort to remember the details that will allow her to heal and to move forward. Virginie Effira is in a further film in these strong French choices. Her character in Madeleine Collins is a duplicitous woman attempting vainly to reconcile herself to others' expectations. She plays Judith, who has a husband and two sons. She also has a lover and a daughter, and a second identity. Entangled in secrets and lies, her double life begins to shatter. The Principal, another French-UK premiere, is at the film festival as well. Our middle school vice-principal Sabri Lachlali is prepared to do whatever it takes to ensure that his son, who's about to sit his leaving exams, will achieve the best possible academic record. But he has no idea just how far his plan will take him. 
Lie With Me's title can be taken in two ways. The French original title, Clearer, Arrête avec tes mensonges, Stop With Your Lying. After agreeing to be the brand ambassador for a famous cognac celebrating its bicentennial, novelist Stéphane turns to his hometown for the first time in many years. The stunning screenplay dovetails moments of exquisitely timed comedy with deep emotional undercurrents in a film that takes you from laughter to tears. Go ahead. Make my day. There will be films from outside Europe too. New Zealand, for example, with Mysterious Ways from director Paul Oramland. This is a world premiere and tells the story of a vicar, Peter, who wants a church wedding with his Samoan boyfriend, Jason. For Anglicans, this is not allowed and homosexuality itself is still taboo in Samoan culture. The vicar's place in the church is threatened and his belief in God is challenged to breaking point. The only thing that can save Peter is a miracle. Powerful performances are promised, bringing this New Zealand Pacific story to life. Brother, from Canada, is adapted from David Chariandi's award-winning novel of the same name and propelled by the energy of Toronto's early hip-hop culture. During the sweltering summer of 1991, escalating tensions set off a series of events that changed the course of the brothers' lives forever. It's directed by Clement Virgo, and here is a clip. What's up, little brother? You good? Yeah, yeah, I'm good. You remember Aisha? Yeah, I remember Aisha. Hey. You know I know your pops? My dad? Yeah, yeah, he's got good music taste. Not a half bad singing voice either. How would you possibly know that? Listen, I, I just know things. I, I know everything that happens in a Waldorf, you know? Okay. Hey, welcome to Desiree. In a UK premiere, The Annoyed is an Iranian film telling the story of three film directors battling against the odds as they try to realise their most difficult projects to date. The Annoyed is directed by Medifad Gaderi, and it offers an absorbing insight into Iran's creative community and its restrictions. As well as these, there's a special event in the form of Don Quixote, a.k.a. The Impossible Dream, a film adaptation of the Ludwig Minkus ballet, completely reorchestrated with additional music by John Lanchbury. An Australian production from 1973, it's directed by Robert Helpman and Rudolf Nureyev, and here's some of the music. Filmed in 1973 in an airport hangar in 40 degrees over 25 days, Nureyev and Helpman, along with the Australian ballet, created Don Quixote the film. The film has been acclaimed worldwide as the best dance film ever made and remastered for this 50th anniversary. For the animated category, we will have the UK premiere of a Jordanian film called Salim. When his father is killed in an unspecified conflict, a boy, his mother and siblings leave their village for the city where they lodge with cousins. Salim, our hero, finds a map. So begins a charmingly realised animated fable in which the age-old plot device of a quest for hidden treasure is given new life by a director, Cynthia Madanat Sharia, who evidently respects the form, the matter and her young potential audience. 
There's also an Australian-German film from 2015 with Kate Blanchett called Manifesto. And Kate Blanchett looms large in the festival, doesn't she, Roger? Yes, she does. And we've got a you know, smashing selection, I think, of, of films which she approved. But unfortunately, because of the actor's strike, she doesn't know now whether she'll be able to attend. So it, it's really uh, just waiting to see what the situation is with, with the actor's strike. So, Carol, what have we got? She is our guest of honour, hopefully, at this year's film festival, which will showcase some of this remarkable actress's life in film to date. So compelling, yet so awful, from Queen Elizabeth I to brutal Lydia Tarr, the seductive older woman in Carol and Notes on a Scandal, and the high society hysterics of Blue Jasmine, Kate Blanchett makes a habit of embodying the most captivatingly imperious and often cruel women that the screen has ever witnessed. And here's a clip from Blue Jasmine with Kate Blanchett and Alec Baldwin. Are you having an affair with Lisette Boudreaux? God, Jasmine, no, no. I can't do this without you. No, no, drink. don't tap dance. You never went to Chicago. You took the Jordans au pair to Paris. I know what's been going on. Uh, can we talk about this, please? Yes, can you we bet talk you, about we it? can talk calmly? about it. Can you do it calmly? I mean, I want to talk to you about what's going on with me, but, you know, you're always so... How do you expect me to react? You have been sleeping with other women for years. I mean, Raylene, your secretary, our trainer, Amy. This is different. She has won two Oscars and been nominated by the Academy for a further six. In addition, she has four BAFTAs and four Golden Globes. By winning the Oscar for her portrayal of Catherine Hepburn in Martin Scorsese's The Aviator, she became the first person to give an Oscar-winning portrayal of a previous Oscar winner. My first memory of the Australian actress, who now lives in East Sussex, was for her portrayal of the Virgin Queen in Shekhar Kapoor's ravishing study of Elizabeth I's ascension to the throne and her early reign. Blanchett's aloof manner and high cheekbones giving gravitas to any role she inhabits, including Tar to be shown on the 21st of August, when hopefully Blanchett will be able to attend and participate in a Q&A after the screening. Her recent Oscar-nominated performance as the malignant conductor at the heart of Todd Field's Tar proves that she is one of the bravest actresses working in cinema today, unafraid to push boundaries and play women who are hard to like but impossible to ignore. The reason uh, that Kate Blanchett is the retrospective um, is because I saw Tar, I saw the world premiere of it in Venice, and I was so struck by it. In fact, I think it's the best film of the year, and it inspired me to think we really ought to do something on, on this. I didn't know whether she'd be able to come, but the fact that, that we put this uh, retrospective on, she was very impressed about. And so here's a clip from Tar. Time is the thing. Uh-huh. Time is, is the essential piece of uh, interpretation. You cannot start without me. See, I start the clock. You know, my left hand, it shapes, but my right hand, the second hand, marks time and moves it forward. However, unlike a clock, sometimes my second hand stops, which means that time stops. Now, the illusion is that, like you, I'm responding to the orchestra in real right. time, making right. the decision about the right moment to restart the thing or reset it or throw time out the window altogether. The reality is that right from the very beginning, I know precisely what time it is and the exact moment that you and I will arrive at our destination together. She is only the sixth actress to win both leading and supporting actress Oscars. 
Roger has chosen nine of her films, including the talented Mr. Ripley, Manifesto, which was previously mentioned, in which she plays 13 different personas, among them a schoolteacher, a puppeteer, a newsreader, a factory worker, and a homeless man. Don't miss either an illustrated talk by Pamela Hutchinson. What makes Kate Blanchett's women so compelling? There's a season of films and a talk about a novelist who saw their work grace the big screen, Patrick. Yeah, Texan-born novelist Patricia Highsmith was the author of 22 novels, over half of which were adapted for the big screen, several of them multiple times. She's the subject of a new documentary by Swiss director Eva Vitilla, which draws extensively on her diaries and which is screening at the festival. To accompany this, four film versions of her work will also be showing, and I will be giving a talk, which I've called The Dark Angel on Screen, and which will provide comprehensive coverage of all the available adaptations of her fiction on both the big and the small screen. Strangers on a Train, her debut novel, published in 1950 when she was 29, became one of Hitchcock's most memorable films the following year and revived his career after a succession of flops. Its legendary murder-swap plot was significantly changed for the film, presumably to comply with censorship, but in the master's hands it became a brilliant synthesis of suspense and black comedy. And here's a clip with Farley Granger and Robert Walker Jr. Ah, now here's my idea. I'm afraid I haven't got time to listen, Bruce. Listen, it's so simple too. Two fellows meet accidentally, like you and me. No connection between them at all. Never saw each other before. Each one has somebody that he'd like to get rid of. So, they swap murders. Swap murders? <laughs> each fellow does the other fellow's murder. Then there's nothing to connect them. Each one has murdered a total stranger. Like, you do my murder, I do yours. We're coming into my station. Curiously enough, despite the success of this film, it would be nearly 50 years before there was another major Hollywood film based on one of her books. But from the 60s to the 80s, no fewer than eight film adaptations of her work were made in France and Germany. Perhaps her most famous creation was Tom Ripley, the anti-hero of five novels between 1955 and 1991. The first of these, The Talented Mr. Ripley, was first filmed in France by René Clément as Plain Soleil with Alain Delon. But the most successful European Highsmith film was arguably The American Friend, an adaptation of the third Ripley novel, Ripley's Game, by German auteur Wim Wenders, which audaciously cast Dennis Hopper as Ripley. And this also forms part of the festival season. Also screening will be the American remake of The Talented Mr. Ripley, filmed in some glorious Italian locations by Anthony Minghella, with an all-star cast, including Matt Damon in the title role, Gwyneth Paltrow, Jude Law, and Kate Blanchett. And we hear the first three of these in this clip now. Can you mix a martini? Sure. Uh, I'll do it. Oh. I make a fabulous martini. <laughs> Everybody should have one talent. What's yours? Forging signatures, uh, telling lies, impersonating practically anybody. That's three. Nobody should have more than one talent. Okay. Do an impression. Now? Huh. The only talent my son has is for cashing his allowance. Blanchett, who is the subject of a season of her own in the festival, as we've already heard from Carol, 
plays a supporting role in this film, but subsequently starred in one of the most memorable of all Highsmith adaptations, Todd Haynes's Carol, based on her second novel, The Price of Salt, originally published under the name of Claire Morgan. An account of a lesbian love affair between Blanchett's older middle-class housewife and a young bohemian woman played by Rooney Mara, the performances are exquisitely understated and the early 1950s setting is precisely evoked through production design, costume and the music of the period. In my talk on screen adaptations of Highsmith, I will be covering, albeit briefly in some cases, 19 film versions, a TV series and an episode of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. The four films Roger has chosen for this season are certainly among the best adaptations of Highsmith's work, but there are a number of other interesting examples, particularly those European versions that I referred to earlier, such as Claude Chabrol's The Cry of the Owl, This Sweet Sickness with a young Gérard Depardieu, and Deep Water with Isabelle Huppert, and I will be giving these due attention. The day I received, a long time ago, my modest O-level grades, my mother suggested a cinema visit to celebrate and we chose If, an interesting choice in that it documents the disintegration of order in the strange world of an English public school. The film was directed by Lindsay Anderson, and this year is the centenary of his birth. In this clip from If, three of the boys are called to the whips or prefect's room. Good evening. I imagine you know why you're here. No? For being a nuisance. A general nuisance in the house. What do you mean, being a nuisance? What have we done? Done? It's all general attitude. You know exactly what I mean. Attitude? And we've decided to beat you for it. Stand up properly when the head of house addresses you. There's something indecent about you, Travis. The way you slouch about. You think we don't notice you with your hands in your pockets. The way you just sit there looking at everyone. You three have become a danger to the morale of the whole house. You can take that cheap little grin off your mouth. We didn't get caned at my school. A, f <laughs> a fascinating filmmaker, several of his films will be screened at the festival. A pair of his short films will be shown together. Every Day Except Christmas, 1957, is an evocative day in the life of Covent Garden Market. And The White Bus, in 1967, is a cult classic observation of a woman's trip around Manchester. Apart from that, there's This Sporting Life, Anderson's 1963 film about rugby league, with Richard Harris. And the loose trilogy of If, O oh Lucky Man and Britannia Hospital, all starring Malcolm McDowell as Mick Travis as well as The Wales of August from 1987, with silent film star Lillian Gish and Betty Davis, what a combination, playing widowed sisters. You know why old ladies sit on park benches, Sarah? Yeah, why, dear? To hold them for springtime lovers. Even the benches want to get away in November. But this is August, dear. Well, what does time matter? <laughs> Time is time. Yes, if you wear it like a wet blanket. A talk, Lindsay Anderson in Focus, is by film journalist and writer Ian Hayden-Smith, who will not only discuss Anderson's films within the context of the era in which they were made, but he will also locate the director's work within the wider landscape of world cinema. The festival has a long tradition of in-memoriam seasons, 
In fact, there's been talk that you, Roger, rub your hands with glee when an obituary of a famous <laughs> actor or director comes out. For example, Jean-Luc Godard died. Yes, exactly. Yeah, When Godard died last year at the age of 91, he left behind him a reputation as arguably the most important and influential French director of all time. With François Truffaut, the two former film critics of intellectual film journal Cahiers de Cinéma, he forged a fresh path in cinema which became known as the New Wave. The two key films which did most to establish this movement were Truffaut's The 400 Blows, released in 1959, and Godard's Breathless, released the following year. 400 Blows probably had and still has more mainstream appeal compared to Breathless, or A Bout de Souffle, as it was known in France, but the latter's freewheeling camera work and avant-garde editing enthralled cinephiles. It's part of a strand of five films showing in tribute to Goddard, plus a talk from regular festival speaker, acclaimed author Ian Christie. Three years after Breathless, Goddard's reputation had grown to the extent that he was making a widescreen Technicolor film with the foremost French movie star of the time, Brigitte Bardot. Le Mépris, or Contempt, was based on a novel by Alberto Moravia and is a film about the making of a film, the film being an Italian version of The Odyssey shot at Ginichitta and on the extraordinary Casa Malaparte built on a rocky outcrop of Capri. Michel Piccoli is Bardo's husband, a screenwriter caught between Jack Palance's brash American producer and Fritz Lang's idealistic director, the German auteur playing a version of himself. Also screening is Le Petit Soldat, The Little Soldier, Godard's follow-up to Breathless, which was banned for three years due to its political content and scenes of torture. It's the least well-known of the films showing at the festival, and very well worth a look, a little gem filmed in Geneva and extremely underrated in my opinion. It stars Anna Karina in her first film, who later became Godard's wife. Karina also co-stars in Alphaville, a science fiction neo-noir hybrid with Eddie Constantine as secret agent Lemmy Caution. Weekend is this year's candidate for most extreme film showing at the festival, a violent and anarchic road movie which makes natural-born killers look like Genevieve. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, from 1980, we have Slow Motion, Godard's return to big-budget movies with a French rock star Jacques Dutronc in the lead and Isabelle Huppert and Natalie Bay in support. Ian Christie's talk is titled Godard's Reputation and the Map of Cinema and it will be fascinating to hear what he has to say about this extraordinary body of work. Someone who has not died and will be visiting the festival is Hugh Bonneville. <laughs> Hugh Bonneville. No, he's, he's very much alive and kicking. And surprisingly, there has not been a major retrospective of this British actor, best known for his roles in Downton Abbey and Paddington. This Roger is putting right. The local actor, I think he lives in Petersfield, also known for his Chichester Festival Theatre performances, as well as his many films, will attend the festival on the 22nd of August, alongside John Hay, director for a Q&A, after the screening of To Olivia. The story charts a significant period in the tumultuous marriage between actress Patricia Neal, played by Keeley Halls, and renowned writer Roald Dahl, Hugh Bonneville. Here's a part of the trailer. My name is Roald Dahl. Some of you may know my books. Well done for Johnny and the Giant. Um, Pineapple. Ah, thank you. And this is my wife, Patricia Neal, star of stage and screen. You're one big kid. And the day you start is the day I file for divorce. Come on, Daddy. We had two daughters, Olivia and Tessa. 
Livy? But a story can have many pages. Livy! Where were we? Chapter 5. Oh, yes. Downton and Paddington are established favourites, so the festival is focusing instead on those less familiar ones, as well as some of Hugh's TV work, including Love Again, the story of the romantic life and the professional relationship of the poet Philip Larkin. From his arrival as librarian at Hull University in 1955 to his death in 1985, Hugh has kindly supplied the festival with personal notes on all of the films being screened, so please have a look at the programme. He writes, I'm really proud of this BBC Two film, which has never been repeated, put on iPlayer, nor released on DVD. No one who has seen the BBC series 2012, which came out in 2011, will want to miss this dry-as-a-shaken martini BBC mockumentary about the organising committee for the 2012 Olympics in London. There's a hoot a line. Don't miss the smash hit W1A, which came out in 2014, when Ian Fletcher, formerly the head of the Olympic Deliverance Commission, has taken up the position of head of values at the BBC. In effect, this will be the opening shot in the campaign to secure the future and the values of the institution we're all sitting in now. Cool. Yes, very good, very strong. So with that in mind, I thought it might be interesting, maybe illuminating, who knows, just to start by asking everyone in this room to write down... Yes. ...to write down one word. This is so cool, we love this. Uh, OK, no. One word. I'm sorry. It's one word. Turquoise. No, I haven't started yet. OK. Just write down yeah. one word that... The first thing that yeah, sure. the first thing that comes into your mind when you hear the word BBC. Okay, so it's not actually a word. Okay, yeah. Just write it. that word down, then fold it up so no one can see it. Okay, go. Right. Okay, you've got thirty seconds. Another BBC series, The Gold, was inspired by true events surrounding the nineteen eighty three Brinks Mad Heist and its remarkable aftermath. See also Hughes 2022, I Came By, an engrossing thriller which follows a young graffiti artist who discovers a shocking secret that would put him and the ones closest to him in danger. Bonneville playing a judge. In this clip, the police visit the retired judge. So Hector Blake, I'm DSL Lloyd. Can we step inside please for a chat? What's this about? I was just on my way out. Sir, I have reasonable grounds to believe that the life of a person on these premises is in danger. Not that again. Under Section 17 of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, we need to come inside and search your property. I'm sure I don't need to explain Section 17 to someone of your stature. Please take off your shoes. Other films being screened are Iris, alongside Judi Dench, Stage Beauty, Scenes of a Sexual Nature, a total of 13 outings for Bonneville fans. <laughs> The latest sight and sound poll caused a bit of a fuss, and we're going to stir it up a bit more, aren't we, Patrick? Well, I hope so, definitely, yeah. So this started back in 1952 when Sight and Sound conducted a poll of film critics to find the greatest film ever made. Each critic was asked to submit a list of 10 films, and the winner of that first poll was Vittorio De Sica's Italian neorealist drama Bicycle Thieves. And then 10 years later, they decided to do it again, and this time the winner was Citizen Kane. 
And such was the interest generated by these polls that it was decided to make them a regular decennial event. And gradually the pool of critics submitting their 10 best films grew and grew, but it didn't shake the dominance of Citizen Kane, which won every poll between 1962 and 2002, before finally in 2012 it was unseated at the top by Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. And by this time, the result of the poll was making national news, featuring on the BBC and in the columns of the quality newspapers. And so we came to the most recent poll in December 2022, and as Sandy intimated, some dramatic changes occurred. The pool of critics now included archivists, curators, academics, have grown to over 1,600, each submitting a list of their 10 greatest films of all time. And for the first time since Citizen Kane came from nowhere to top the chart in 1960, we had a new number one which had not previously come anywhere near the top 10. Even more sensationally, it was a film directed by a woman. Previously, no film directed by a woman had even reached the top 30. And on top of that, it turned out that hardly anyone had heard of it and even fewer had seen it. <laughs> so the film concerned was Jeanne Dielman. It was a Belgian film originally released in 1975 and the director at the time was a young woman by the name of Chantal Ackerman. By the time of the poll in 2012, its reputation had grown to the extent that it did receive the highest number of votes of any film directed by a woman, but that still left it a long way down at number 36. And so this year it's jumped to number one. And we also saw a huge number of films directed by women and also by directors of colour appearing in the top 100. So all this caused a lot of celebration on the grounds the poll had suddenly become much more inclusive and recognising the talent of many directors previously marginalised in the film industry. But it also prompted a lot of mumbling and grumbling from curmudgeons who suggested that the votes had been cast for films on the grounds of the gender or ethnicity of the director rather than purely aesthetic reasons. So Roger, keen to stir up trouble in his final <laughs> film festival as director, decided it might be good to have a debate about the poll and the issues raised by it. And we have a panel of four chaired by Roger, including regular guest speaker and local film author Ellen Cheshire, French film curator Dr. Martine Pircan, and Sandy and myself. And each of us is going to speak briefly about an aspect of the poll, and then there will be ample opportunity for audience interaction between the speakers and at the end. Also, on the morning of this debate, the winning film, Jeanne Dielman, will be screened at the cinema for the first time. Although you may not have heard of the film, there's a good chance that you will have heard of the star, French actress Delphine Seyri, who was in Bunuel's The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, and also English language films, including Accident with Dirk Bogard and The Day of the Jackal. This is an unmissable opportunity to see this extraordinary film on the big screen and you will then have time to digest it over lunch before joining us for the debate in the studio the same afternoon. Which incidentally is free. Not the film but that makes sense. (laughs) And we hope to see you there. Frankly my dear I don't give a damn. Another regular section within the festival is focus on the documentary. The film festival has always championed documentary films, with no less than 13 to choose from. Elizabeth McGovern, the actress better known for her work on Downton Abbey, will introduce I'm Still Here, as she is the executive producer. The film is an object lesson on how to campaign quietly and effectively, and it is as much an historical record as a plea for compassion towards the homeless. 
shot from March 2020, when London became a dystopian cityscape, until May 21 and the end of the third lockdown, it follows the work of volunteers from a Covent Garden collective called Under One Sky as they help those sleeping rough on streets deserted for weeks on end. Among the heroes of the story is the owner of a Punjab restaurant who calculates that he and his team produce some 175,000 meals for customers who never sat at one of his tables. A heartwarming experience. UK documentary premieres include The Address on the Wall from Ukraine, So to Say, that's S-E-W to Say, History's longest sustained mass demonstration at the Greenham Common Peace Camp, recalled by one of its founding mothers, Talia Campbell, and Afghanistan, a timely new documentary chronicling James Glancy, British soldiers returned to Afghanistan just as the US troops pulled out of the country amid a Taliban takeover. Glancy will attend the festival to introduce the film and for a Q&A afterwards. A preview, A Trip to Tetla Payak, an essay film by Ian Christie, is about director Sergei Eisenstein's 1931 visit to Mexico. Isabelle Huppert also returns in this section in the UK premiere of By Heart, billed as a rare treat for fans of Huppert and actor Fabrice Lucchini is a fly-on-the-wall portrait of their talents, both of them inadvertently performing a version of themselves as actors. Fans, and there are legions of them, will revel in My Name is Alfred Hitchcock. 2022 marked the 100-year anniversary of his first feature, the British-German silent film The Pleasure Garden. A century on, Hitchcock, the master of suspense, remains one of the most influential filmmakers in the history of cinema. But how does his vast body of work and legacy hold up in today's society? It's directed by Mark Cousins, and there is a clip coming up with Mark Cousins and Alistair McGowan, who actually voices Hitchcock. Uh, is this working? Yes, Mr. Hitchcock, it's working. OK. I'm ready to tell my story. My name is Alfred Hitchcock, and before I died, I was the most famous filmmaker in the world. My films were like Jimmy Stewart in Rear Window. They loved looking. And how would you like us to look at your films in the 21st century, Alfred? I'd like you to look at Janet in that lonely, remote shower and see yourself in her, her hope your vulnerability. This year is the 150th anniversary of the birth of Rachmaninoff, and a friend of the festival, Tony Palmer, made a documentary about the composer in 1998. Do you think we shall ever see each other again? I don't know. Not for years, anyway. Children will all be grown up. I wonder if they'll ever meet and know each other. Couldn't I write you? Just once in a while. No, Alec, please, you know we promised. Oh, dear. I do love you so very much. It is a curious story. The older we get, the more we lose that divine confidence, which is the treasure of youth. And the fewer are those moments when we believe that what we have done is any good. Nowadays, I am rarely satisfied with myself. 
and almost never feel that what I do is successful. I am burdened with a harvest of sorrow. That was an extract from David Lean's Brief Encounter, starring Trevor Howard and Celia Johnson, and featuring the music of Rachmaninoff, whose words we then heard spoken by John Gilgood in Tony Palmer's documentary, The Harvest of Sorrow. A number of film directors have made very effective use of classical music in films, such as Visconti's use of Mahler in Death in Venice and Todd Field with various composers in Tar, which was mentioned earlier by Carol. But Lean's use of Rachmaninoff in Brief Encounter has got to be one of the most powerful, and that will be screening together with Tony Palmer's documentary, which I've not seen. But his films about Shostakovich and Vaughan Williams, both of which have been shown in recent years here at the cinema, were both riveting and moving, and I'm looking forward to seeing this one in Immensely. And as Sandy said, Tony has been to Chichester Cinema on several occasions to introduce his films. He's one of the great musical documentarians of the last 50 years, and we're hoping to have him back again this year, not only to introduce the film, but also to conduct a Q&A afterwards. <laughs> Roger's love of jazz is well known, and it's a regular feature of the festival, with live music as well as on screen. Ronnie's is a documentary about Ronnie Scott's iconic Soho club, featuring many stars, including some of my personal favourites, Sonny Rollins, Chet Baker, Nina Simone and others. Here's a clip from the film with the late great George Melly, and then Ronnie himself. They have a very casual attitude towards the customers, but a very rigid attitude towards what they have on offer. They just won't offer total mediocrity or cocktail jazz. And I think that impresses people. I think they come here because they really like and trust what Ronnie is going to give them. I'd like to see the music business in such a uh, position that one could put on, for instance, someone like Donovan in the main room and so it was at the Gary Burton Quartet, and upstairs the discotheque would play good pop music. And I'm convinced that, that this is where the future of jazz lies, in appealing to uh, the people that like pop music, you know. And I'm sure this is possible, because there are so many pop groups now, especially the forward-looking ones, that are playing jazz, whether they think so, or they realise it or not, they are. This is followed by live music from a jazz quintet led by Andrew Kleindert, playing music associated with the musicians who performed at Ronnie's. Andrew's led bands at the festival for a number of years, including the Mingus tribute last summer. Live at Mr Kelly's looks back at the swinging Chicago-era jazz, and it tells the story of the movements for free speech, civil rights, women's liberation and peace that happened alongside the fabulous entertainment provided by jazz and alternative comedy. Herbie Hancock, Barbara Streisand and others feature in this. We'll come back to why there's a screening of the magnificent Jazz on a Summer's Day later on, but there's also Buster Plays Buster. A jazz band featuring Buster Birch on drums will perform live to a screening of the Buster Keaton classic silent film Steamboat Bill Jr. from 1928. Can't wait for that one. And talking of silent movies, Harold Lloyd's Safety Last from 1923, you know, when he hangs off the clock, is being screened. 
If that wasn't enough, there's the 1925 Lon Chaney version of Phantom of the Opera, with an organ accompaniment in St John's Chapel. But back to Jazz on a Summer's Day. The festival is marking Roger's final outing with some of his favourite films, including that one. So, why that one and what else? Oh yes, well I'm indulging, as it is my last film festival, in showing ten films. They're not the ten best films, I keep emphasising this, they're just favourites that I thought we would show, or share with your audience. Jazz on a Summer's Day, I, I, I've chosen, there have been lots of documentaries since, uh, which have been very good, but I just like the idea that Bert Stern's uh, direction allows... It's all performances. There's no voiceover, there's no uh, interviews or anything. It's purely the impression of Jazz on a Summer's Day. So you get wonderful excerpt, not excerpts, but complete things from Bob Brookmeyer, from Anita Day. Armstrong from Mahalia Jackson and that's why I why I like it in connection with the the favorites as I said they're just films which I've wanted to to show and um, enjoy I can't remember all the ones I've chosen funnily enough I haven't got the list in front of me but we've already mentioned Hitchcock and he, as you say he hovers all over the festival and he's one of my favorite film directors I used to teach film and I always thought he was the best person to actually show people about the language of cinema not the plots or anything but the actual language of cinema anyway so instead of showing one film of his such a difficult thing I decided that I would concentrate on an area I know he's known as this master of suspense but he's also very a very funny director uh, and I was looking at the humor in Hitchcock's films from the lady vanishes right up to films like frenzy people may not think frenzy is a particularly funny film it's not but there's some very funny sequences in it and of course Hitchcock is always I think uh, got his tongue in his cheek I mean Psycho he describes as a black comedy not everybody thought that when they saw it originally Shubrol I've mentioned uh, in the selection of films um, much as I admire Truffaut and Goddard I've always had a soft spot for Claude Shubrol again he's rather Hitchcockian so I'm showing one of his films as well well I've got a list Uh, I've got Jazz on a Summer's Day Fantasia Fireman's Ball, Sunset Boulevard. You're Norma Desmond. Used to be in silent pictures, used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. Jour de Fête, Merci pour le chocolat, The Vanishing, and that's the original, isn't it? Not the remake. The Wild Bunch, and A Matter of Life and Death. Are you wounded? Repeat, are you wounded? Are you bailing out? What's your name? June. Yes, June, I'm bailing out. I'm bailing out, but there's a catch. I've got no parachute. I'm finishing with the Wild Bunch, and that's in the main hall. You can't show that on the small screen. <laughs> when you side with a man, you stay with him, and if you can't do that, you're like some animal. You're finished. We're finished. All of us. I think that's a fantastic selection of films, Roger. Yes. You're saying, well, they're not the best, but yeah. well, I think that, that well, was I'm, as good as any yeah. ten best. I did <laughs> say in, in my blurb, I think, that I don't yeah. know how many of them appear in the sight and sound. A lot of them do. <laughs> yeah. Lots of them do. Yes. You can leave in a taxi. If you can't get a taxi, you can leave in a huff. If that's too soon, you can leave in a minute and a half. You know you haven't stopped talking since I came here? You must have been vaccinated with a phonograph needle. 
So, finally, Carol, which film is closing the festival? Well, Along Came Love, which is the UK premiere from France, rounds off a truly exceptional film festival. Uh, the art-going Roger has chosen this strong story of love. One of the most powerful moments in French writer-director Catel Cuivere's newest film happens at the very beginning during a superbly edited credit sequence of archive footage from the end of World War II. It starts with victory parades and American GIs celebrating in the streets of France, then finishes shockingly with images of female collaborators who, because of their affairs with German soldiers, were marched through the very same streets where they were beaten, branded with swastikas, forcibly head-shaved and publicly humiliated. This is a substantial involving drama that tallies the cost of living on the wrong side of social and sexual conventions in the 1950s and 60s. The inspiration for the story came from Cuivere's own family background. She belatedly discovered that her grandmother had conceived a child with a German soldier and had guarded this secret throughout her life. The writer-director certainly aimed high in a story that spans nearly four decades, beginning when Madeleine, now the disgraced mother of a little boy named Daniel, meets wealthy intellectual Francois at a hotel restaurant where she works in Brittany in 1947. A tale where happiness was walks a tightrope above abysses, is driven by desire. It's only through passion that you'll get to know the world around you, because where secrets abound, life begins too. As always, we're just scratching the surface of the largest independent film festival on the South Coast. There is so much more we haven't had time to talk about here, but you can find out more details with screening times and booking details at chichestercinema.org. The festival runs from August the 4th to the 27th, and we hope to see you there. For now, though, it's thanks to Carol. Look forward to seeing you at the festival. Patrick? Yeah, me too. I'll see you there. And a huge thanks to Roger for so many years of imaginative and exciting programming. Next year, you'll just be a punter like the rest of us. Yes, I'm afraid so. I still go to film festivals. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, goodbye from us and happy viewing. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me, and I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Find us at chichestercinema.org.